Welcome to CineLit. Uh, my name is Adam Marsh and I'm joined by my regular contributor film historian Daryl Buxton. How are you doing Daryl? I'm fine thanks Adam. Glad to be here. <laughs> Good stuff. Well we are unfortunately missing a member of our team. Uh, Rebecca who usually is uh, on this on these podcasts with us isn't furloughed. The exciting answer that I like to give is that she's away on assignment. So uh, we will hopefully get back with her uh, in, in the next month when this country uh, starts up again, I guess. As most people are confined to their houses, flats, apartments, bungalows, sheds, allotments, whatever, we thought we would talk single location movies. Um, how does that topic grab you, Daryl? That sounds good to me. Sounds uh, very, uh, very topical. So the films that are entirely or, or almost entirely shot in a single location. Um, who knows, maybe this podcast will inspire filmmakers to finally do that long-awaited heist in a loft conversion movie that the world's been waiting for, or a kung fu action film in a greenhouse. Who knows? Um, <laughs> so what are some of your favourite single location movies, Daryl? The one to start with immediately is a very recent one. Uh, my favourite film of the year so far, favourite film of 2020, uh, Robert Eggers' film The Lighthouse. Oh wow, yeah, great movie, great movie. Not not one to live your life by though, I guess if not, you're no, stuck no. in your own but house. I think as, um, as, as we go on to discuss, I think we'll find that uh, a lot of these um, single location movies don't don't always end well, you know. Uh, it seems to be a sort of thing that goes hand in hand with them. Is if, if you're shooting on a single location, it's probably going to be something nasty happening. Not always, but, but it's, uh, it seems to be a bit of a rule of thumb. Yeah, if you're trapped in your house throughout this movie, you, you, you're probably it's not really not the best for your mental health. I think is usually uh, the, the the big takeaway from a lot of these movies. Uh, one of one, I'm just going to put up one of my favourites is uh, it's a 35 minute uh, television short for um, Spanish TV. I think in the 1970s, 1972, called La Cabina, the telephone box. It's a really, really innovative, interesting movie. Um, entirely set in a public phone box where a man's trapped in there and nobody on the outside world seems to even notice he exists. Fascinating film with a killer ending. So, um, yeah, one to check out, I think. You were mentioning earlier that um, this movie has its roots in another movie from the 60s. Yeah, there was a, a really good sort of paranoid thriller in the 60s with James Coburn called The President's Analyst. And the phone company is is like they keep mentioning the phone company all the way through that film as though it's the bad guy and it's part of some big American conspiracy. It's uh, it's all done in a sort of light-hearted, psychedelic way, but it's got this this sinister core running through it. And the last few minutes of the film has James Coburn basically going through the same routine that the guy in La Cabina goes through only five years earlier. So I think the uh, Antonio Machero, the, the director of La Cabina, was uh, was probably watching quite closely, but then took that five minute skit from uh, from President's Analyst and developed it into into half an hour and very, very successfully. So, you know, I'm not I'm not just saying the film's a rip off. I think it's a very, very, very good riff on um, on earlier material. And yeah, really, really sort of creepy and scary and uh, works its way to a very, uh, very satisfying ending. Yeah, worth checking out if you can find that online anywhere. Cool. So how, how do you want to do this topic, Daryl? I mean, we, I mean in the, initially I thought we could maybe do this historically as we do, we start early and move onwards. But Yeah, well, I, 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 think, I think we'll, we'll, yeah, we'll go back in time. And I think that's a good place to start because um, if you think about the transition from silent to sound cinema. You've got some people, especially if they're not working at major studios, you've got people working on limited resources around sort of 1929, 1930. People who want to make films, but they're not, they're not making them at Warner Brothers or whatever, you know. People making films fairly cheaply with small casts and so on. And you've also got this trend of, uh, especially as sound comes in, of uh, stage hits, Broadway hits and so on, being filmed and, and bought to film. And this all sort of feeds into the single location thing, because uh, one of the trends of that time was the old Dark House film, with things like Cat and the Canary being brought from the stage 
onto film. And then, of course, a film called The Old Dark House in the early 30s from James Whale, perhaps the, the, the classic of its kind. What you've got here is, um, and this, this becomes a bit of a trend of, um, of single location films. One of, one of the trends of it is a bunch of disparate um, assorted characters from different backgrounds and different classes suddenly being thrown together in a single location, having A, to deal with a threat, either externally or within the place that they are, and also having to deal with each other and their differing views and differing opinions. Well, it was, it was a trope of a lot of sort of like crime things, particularly the detective stories, where I've gathered you all here and we're going to find out who murdered the person. Or... If, if you imagine, yeah, imagine the last, the last five minutes of any episode of Columbo sort of expanded into, into an hour and 20 minutes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. That was definitely a trend in, in those those detective stories. I mean, Inspector Calls was a massively popular play and film. It is. It's the interesting in that you've you've got the um, you've got the sort of threat going on. You've got the interesting sort of story going on, but you've also got this whole sort of thing about the the, the nature of the characters and their different backgrounds and class and things like that coming into it as well. So uh, one of the sort of trends of the single location movie is to sort of compress all of this together and almost have it as like a microcosm of um, bigger picture. And in these particular films, it's sort of looking at class and looking at society in the guise of a detective thriller or a, a murder mystery or something. It's uh, remarkable how these these sort of you know genres that are, are often seen as being sort of pulp and cheap and throwaway can actually use that single location to um, bring in these wider issues, more important issues. Well, as we go through the history of that, we see that quite a lot, that sort of like single location being used as a microcosm for society, for class, for race, and for many of those different things. I mean, we'll, we'll go on to talk about that when we talk about some individual films later on. That's been a constant. That, that was right there at the start in the late 20s, early 30s. And it's still happening today. When people make films like this today, those issues still rise to the surface quite often. So, so one of the one of the big names from that period that seemed to take the idea of a single location uh, and really run with it and give a vigour to it was uh, Alfred Hitchcock with things like Lifeboat in 1944, but then Roll 1948. Yeah. One thing with Hitchcock is the, these are some of these early films we were talking about. Were, were single location films sort of by default, you know, they, they, they weren't intended to be, it was just the, the filmmakers hadn't got the resources to film anywhere other than on a single small soundstage or, or on, a, on a small location. Hitchcock was doing it by choice. He was experimenting, yeah. He was saying, right, I've made my big films, I've, I've made, um, you know, Rebecca and so on. Let's see, let's see what I can do if I put handcuffs on myself, if I constrain myself. Can I make a film set in a boat? Can I make a film that is done in a single take in, in one room, you know? And so it's an experiment for the filmmaker. And if audiences then like the end result, that's a bonus, you know. But, but yeah, it was all an exercise for Hitch in these cases. Like you say, I think like Rebecca and The Lady Vanishes, uh, earlier Hitchcock films almost were single location films by default. You know, like Lady Vanishes, it's got scenes at the start, but most of it's set on that train when the lady actually yes. vanishes. So al although they are they are films that are fairly big in scope, um, you can see the seeds sort of starting to form in Hitchcock's mind there of, oh, right, I've done The Lady Vanishes, I've got these scenes set on a train, you know, what if I condensed that? What if I tried to pull that in even further, you know, and stick the characters on a lifeboat or whatever, you know, and with remarkable results, I think. He really, really set the template for the experimental filmmaker who wanted to do this by choice. Yeah, I mean, as we've been talking about, a lot of these films that were single location budget were not for budget reasons. 
you know, in the cases of Hitch, particularly Hitchcock and some of those sort of like big dramas set in old houses and things like that. But then we get into the 1950s and 60s and the independent cinema industry starts to, to ramp up a little bit more. And we start seeing much more <laughs> lower budget movies uh, being made and released in, in cinemas and drive-ins and things like that, where the single location starts to become much more of a blessing and a curse depending on on, on the quality of yeah. the film by this again. time you've had hitchcock's films you've had lifeboat and you've had rope and so filmmakers coming in in the 50s they're they're transported back 25 years to the early 30s where suddenly oh i'm making a film and i've got i've got no resources you know i'm making it in in the garden shed sort of thing but they then use the, the the Hitchcock template as a virtue. Yeah. They they manage to sort of have their cake and eat it. It's brilliant. You know, they can say, okay, right, I'm making a film in my garage, but what can I do with that? What can I how can I make that interesting? So yeah, you've suddenly got this whole area where low budget filmmakers are capable of making very interesting work and actually experimenting and using the lack of resources as a positive. I guess that's where the sort of like ties to uh, genre start to come in because low budget films tended to be genre films because they were being made for specific audiences. So the sort of like combination of the low budget, the genre and the single location starts to come in in the 50s and 60s, I guess. Yeah, I mean, one, one thing you'll get, for instance, is, is the early rock and roll movies. Instead of getting Elvis Presley, who they can't afford, you know, they, they get the guys who've played at the, the local town hall that weekend. They, they pay them five bucks or as much beer as they can drink, you know. They get three or four of these bands into a hall somewhere, film them, create some drama around it, you know, some juvenile delinquent type uh, knife drama or something, you know. And, hey, you've got an hour-long movie. with You've got 20 minutes of plot, 40 minutes of bands playing terrible music, and you've got a film, you know. And there there were were quite a few of these. So that's that's one one area where this under, under a single roof sort of thing plays out. And then, yeah, you get you get into things like horror, science fiction, crime, drama, and so on. And this then all starts to feed back, I think, into the mainstream as well, you know. And as movie making tends to, you know, uh, um, it's it's the experimenters, it's the people who take a chance, who strive to do something different, who take that gamble, and then the mainstream sort of takes it on board and says, hey, you know, these guys have done a great job, or more likely, hey, these guys have made a ton of money for not much outlay. You know? <laughs> let's let's copy this. The um, the single location movie fed into that as, as much as anything did, you know. But yeah, a lot of it does come, the, the, the roots of it are really in the fact that you're talking about filmmakers in the late 20s and early 30s around the sort of time that sound came in and then later on in the 50s as technology starts to to change and people have more access to filmmaking and right up to today as well where that's happening again we're actually living in a period now where a lot of young filmmakers are breaking through and saying hey you know i can make a film for 50 quid on my phone but once you once you've decided to make a film for 50 quid on your phone you'll probably find that you tend to make a single location movie you can make a film on your phone you can't make dr zhivago on your phone you know so what do you do you go into your garden shed and you make a film with your mate but that's that seems to be a trend that sort of comes back every every sort of 25 or 30 years you know as technology changes and as more people want to get into filmmaking so this this is a very interesting area in terms of cinema experimentation and development there's there's always a couple of films that become the sort of like bellwether film for for the way things are going i'm thinking like night of the living dead in the, in the 60s was like a a klaxon for certain types of filmmakers and and that that was a similar single location uh, low budget film massively successful uh, and then in the 90s we're talking like reservoir dogs from tarantino and clerks from kevin smith uh, which were both very impactful on a, on a generation of filmmakers there and and then fast forwarding again another 15 20 years things like saw the horror movie which yeah. was a very clever single location 
uh, movie that spawned another eight movies after that. Very, very successful. Yeah, Saw's an interesting one because that, um, uh, although that spawned a franchise that rather sort of expands the concept and changes it and, uh, and has now got a reputation as being a very, very violent and twisted sort of horror franchise. Two things there. A, the, the franchise has never, although it's tried to sort of expand, get beyond the boundaries of the single location movie, it keeps being drawn back to that. You know, the major set pieces are all about that same sort of oppression and same sort of sense of fear and sense of being trapped that you get in a genuine single location movie. And the first movie, which is a single location movie, people may forget this now in the light of having seen Saw 2 and 3 and 4 and so on, and the, the sort of vicious um, uh, sort of trap and games that are played in those movies. That first movie has actually got a very, very sort of 1930s feel to it with the sort of hooded skulking killer sort of roaming around. And, and the whole mystery set up to it of why are we here? What's happening? How do we get out of this? It actually really does hark back to not necessarily the old Dark House films of the 30s, but a, a, another strand of, of, of 30s horror, which was coming out of the sort of budget end of the market, which was the sort of mysterious hooded killer sort of lurking around, again, often with characters trapped in a single location. So the sort of cheaper end of the old Dark House movie. And Saw, the first Saw, seemed to sort of revive that in a way. And then the series went off on, on this, this whole other tangent. But yeah, that's a very important film, both in terms of film culture, in terms of the way that people have sort of used it as an inspiration. But it's a very, very important film in the sense of what we're talking about today, which is the single location and shows what you can do with a minimal cast with, with again, imposing constraints on yourself. We talked earlier about Hitchcock being deliberately challenging himself with the constraints of, of, of a single location or one shot table. He was deliberately trying to find ways of constraint, constricting himself. And I think another, another name that looms large in horror that I feel is a very similar, similar case to that is Stephen King as a novel. Definitely. He's done the single location novel. Yeah, very, very often. And he's, he's, he's done it to perfection. I've actually got this theory that King has got a private bet going with himself throughout his career that he, he wrote Cujo in the early 80s. And that's largely set in the backseat of a car with, you know, mother and son being attacked by by this this sort of slavering, rabid dog. And having written Cujo, I think King's I, I love to theorise about this. I think he's sort of thought to himself, I wonder if I could write a novel set inside a cardboard box or something, or a matchbox. Or, and, he's, and he's tried to sort of condense things more and more. He's, he's done two novels, which have both been filmed since, about characters who spend the entire story in a bed, trapped in a bed. So you've got Misery and you've got Gerald's Game. He, he sort of expands the concept a little. I suppose, you know, if you go back to the start of his career with the novel The Shining, which is all about the Overlook Hotel, you know, and then you look at something like The Mist, which is all set in uh, in a sort of supermarket. There is there is this impression you get with King that he's sort of got this private bet with himself. Can I write stories in a, a more and more confined space? One interesting um, uh, tale that he wrote, which is as very very recently been filmed was um, In the Tall Grass, which is uh, all about people sort of driving uh, along a sort of country road. They have to stop off and wander into this field as um, they can hear sort of voices from within this, this long grass. And they go into the grass and they can't come out. That's interesting because that's, that's a single location movie. But it's an open air single location, which is a whole other area of, you know, when you mention the topic single location films, I think most people's first thought is, oh, yeah, people confined to a room or chained to a radiator or something, you know. But you, you can have In the Tall Grass, you can have Tom Hanks in Castaway, film set on an island. There is this sort of under an open sky idea going on as well. So there, are, there aren't really constraints to what this type of film can be. There's, of course, one, one thing we found in our researchers in preparing for this talk is that 
the trusty old British Film Institute have, have put a list of confined spaces and limited single set movies up on their website, which I, I think you're going to put a link up to. Yeah, I'll stick a link on our Facebook page to the article, but it's quite an interesting list. It's quite um, broad in its interpretation of what single location. E- even more than I would be, I think. You know, it's, uh, I mean, they've, they've included hotel films, which I mentioned earlier, and it's not just films with characters in a hotel room, and there are plenty of those, but it's actually films set in the entire hotel. So again, you can, you can think about The Shining there. You can, you can go back to the 30s, and while all the old Dark House films were going on, in these sort of very confined locations you've also got stuff like Grand Hotel which is a big big budget full of stars movie later on you've got things like California Suite and then you've got the Tarantino Robert Rodriguez film Four Rooms these are sort of single location movies Towering Inferno I guess even you know um uh, Die Hard, which is on the yeah. BFI's list, you know, they're, they're films set in hotels or skyscrapers or these big multi-room buildings, but they they, they kind of fit into the uh, under the umbrella of the single location film, at least according to the BFI. And who are we to argue with? Yeah, them? I, I guess a lot of those. I mean, you, t- you mentioned Towering Inferno, but a lot of those sort of like uh, Poseidon Adventure, they're, they're one locations that are vast, you know, vast one location. I don't think we're really talking about those kind of one, one location. As I say, you can't get much more vast than the open desert, for instance, or, or you know, the, 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 the prairie or the plain. But again, quite often, a lot of westerns will be set on a single location that just happens to be the Arizona desert <laughs> yeah. or something like that. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I, I, you know, I don't know. People can define their own parameters on this, I think. As I say, the BFI tend to take a very broad view on this. And I think it's interesting to do that. It's interesting to include the films that are set in the out, in outdoors settings. And one thing you can do with a film like In the Tall Grass or with a film that I know is a favourite of yours, 127 Hours, the Danny Boyle film, you can set the film outdoors, but you can also confine it, have the best of both worlds. Yeah, I mean, I mean, literally, I mean, but In, in the Tall Grass is quite an interesting one because it, it is a single location outdoors, but it also brings together Stephen King and uh, Vincenzo Natale. Yeah, now Natale is—he's—he's he's another interesting name to bring up. We—we uh, we talked about Hitchcock as being maybe the the sort of guy who birthed this whole thing as as an art form, you know, uh, as something that was beyond necessity. He he did it on purpose. And Natale's one of the directors who's sort of taken that up in recent years and run with it. He did a great short right at the start of his career called Elevated which is characters in a a lift and the doors open and somebody else bursts in and claims that there are monsters outside. He has to then spend the next 20 minutes trying to convince all of the other people in the lift that they've got to stay there. Don't go outside, you're going to be killed. You know, very, very tense, very exciting. Another one to track down if if you want to watch a, a quick sort of 15, 20 minute sort of version of this sort of thing. Natali then went on to a feature career and he's made films like Cube, which is very interesting sort of science fiction film with characters trapped in these sort of cube-like structures and having yeah, to... It does feel like Cube was an influence on Saw, particularly in, in, its, in its like person waking up in a strange place. That's it, yeah. Waking up, not knowing where they are, and then having to solve these weird problems, deadly problems, in order to get out of there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but um, Natalie then went on to make a film that I've, I've not actually seen, but uh, I'm, I'm keen to sort of track down, called uh, Nothing, which is about characters who apparently just find themselves in, they, they suddenly are in this world where there's nothing. So I don't know if Natalie, people that have seen that can let us know, but whether they, they wake up and everything's just white all around them or what, I don't know. But again, that sounds a very interesting sort of take on um on that theme so he seems the perfect director to match up with the material of Stephen King and and which he did last year when he made the movie version of In the Tall Grass at the same time that that started getting shown um that appeared on on streaming services sort of October last year and around about that time in fact I I saw that in the same weekend that I saw Vivarium the new release 
that has been made available on platforms online uh, this this month. But I, I saw Vivarium at a film festival in the same weekend that I saw In the Tall Grass. And that's a very, very interesting sort of double bill there because Vivarium is all set on this green housing estate. It's this new housing estate, houses with all mod cons, but they're all they're all coloured green. So it's an interesting tie on with tie in with the grass of in the tall grass. They made a very interesting double bill because essentially, although one's urban and one's set in the countryside, they're they're the same plot. You've got a couple wandering into this green environment that seems to go on forever and ever and ever, but is confined as well. That's that's the 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 sort of perverse thing about it. It's endless, but they can't escape from it. So there's an interesting take on the single location movie. If you're looking for an interesting sort of contemporary double bill to look at this sort of outdoors type of or, or endless, endless, boundless sort of single location type movie. And especially with the green, the colour green sort of playing a focus, I think Vivarium and In the Tall Grass could be a double bill that uh, people might want to check out. Let's let's move on. Let's move on to um, some 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 other films that we've we've, we've not talked about yet. As we talk about science fiction and, and, and genre movies, tended to be the areas where people are much more uh, comfortable in, in doing single location films in those in those areas. Films like like we talked about Saw, also things like The Purge recently which was a great example. The Purge, the Purge brings us on to a whole other area, of course, which is the home invasion film, which is, which is sort of linked with the horror film and the thriller and the crime movie. So again, it's, it's almost like a little subgenre of its own because it has feet in all these different categories. I think it's a fascinating genre in the sense that depending on who's directing it, it depends on where it's put as a genre. If it's directed by Michael Haneke, as, as is with, with Funny Games, it's an art house dissection of class and, and, and culture. If it's um, if it's uh, Sean Cunningham, it's a, a killer slasher movie set in a camp. Yeah, it's it's interesting how uh, the the home invasion film and the slasher movie and the horror film and the science fiction film as well, films set on board spaceships, for instance, a lot of the, a lot of the Alien franchise, if not all of them, fall into this camp of of largely being single location films and again having this idea of a bunch of characters being thrown together and having a this outside force that is attacking them all but b it's all about their relationships with with one another it comes to this thing about the class system and about hierarchy and you can apply that to films we've we've recently seen in in the past few years there's been that great horror movie the belco experiment Mm -hmm. which was all about the office environment and people turning up to their office um, as they do every morning they just turn up it's going to be a normal working day no not today they get trapped in and they get told that they're part of some experiment which again involves this idea of games and traps and having to follow certain instructions and rules, and it ends up that they all have to kill each other. And it's a very interesting take on the the sort of hierarchy of the office environment, pitched in terms of a gory horror film. Yeah, I guess it's a very literal dog eat dog business business world exactly. as as a film. I guess there was a British example of that earlier on in two thousand and nine called Exam which is around yes. the interview, again, in business culture. That's what's worth yeah, that checking was, out. That was the job interview thing, yes, yeah, where people are all shut in this same room, are given tests and pitched against each other, and it doesn't end well, you know. But yeah. uh, these, these things never end well, do they? No. But this, this class thing is very interesting, and, it, and it, it actually does emerge from a lot of the genre films, because in the Home Invasion movie, the very early examples of that were in the 1950s, there's a great film called Suddenly with Frank Sinatra, which Sinatra actually suppressed for many years. He didn't want it shown because it was it has a political sort of edge to it. It's all about this gang of criminals who intend to assassinate a, an American president who happens to be passing. I think he's on on board a train or something. So they they take over, they barge into this house that's nearest to the point where they can actually get a shot at the president. They invade this house and take it over from the family who live there. 
and and they then just sit waiting for the president to come past so that they can have a pop at him. <laughs> and then a year a year after that, you've got the Desperate Hours, uh, which was then remade in 1990, which again is criminals coming into a household and uh, and taking over with films like that. And that then developed into the horror film and and the the 60s thriller. Films like Lady in a Cage, which has uh, Olivia de Havilland being menaced by thugs who break into her house and her home has been fitted because she's playing a disabled character. Her home has been fitted with an elevator inside and various devices to help her get around. And suddenly this gang of hoodlums sort of invades and won't go away and torment her in her own house. Uh, there was a British film called The Penthouse that had a, a sort of similar idea of this gang breaking into an apartment. Into the 70s, we've got films like a very interesting one called uh, Fight for Your Life, which was an American film which um, was banned in this country as a video nasty. What that does, it, it takes the home invasion template of criminals breaking into a house in order to sort of hole up and, and hide from the police. But it brings in a, a, a savage racism angle in that we've got um, a household that is a, a, a black family unit and we've got the criminals who are white racists. The, I, I, I think that film may well have been banned in Britain as much for the outrageous, appalling language and dialogue in the film as, as much as any sort of on-screen violence. And it's, it's still quite a hard movie to sit through today, maybe even more so now. Yeah. But it's a great, it's a great version of that home invasion template and, and a film that's well worth tracking down if you can. There was a, a British film called Give Us Tomorrow that came out a few years after that in the late 70s with Darren Nesbitt and a younger accomplice who, again, are holding up in the household of a sort of upper middle class family and um, in order to evade the police. And again, um, you get this idea of the class system coming into play. So what start out as being sort of cheap, generic genre crime thrillers turn into something a little bit more substantial in terms of the discussion and the debate that goes on within the film. And it's literal debate between the characters. It's not just the audience sort of picking up on the ideas. The characters themselves are actually talking about this. And this is something that extends into coming back to Hitchcock again, you know, you think of a film like The Birds, which isn't a single location movie per se, but is a large parts of the film are confined to that diner which is under siege from the from the attacking birds. And there you've got this assortment of, of varied characters from all kinds of different backgrounds and classes. And the diner is used in films like Maximum Overdrive, the Stephen King film again, and films like uh, Steve DeJarnat's Miracle Mile, um, his great apocalyptic nuclear drama. Again, these aren't these aren't necessarily what we're talking about. They're not they're not single location films, but they feed into that same thing of throwing characters together into a location for large swathes of the running time and pitting them together. Not only are they being assaulted by something from outside, but they have to deal with their own opinions of each other and their own sort of feelings about the class that is above or below them. It's interesting how just how rich a vein of material this is in what ought to be a fairly sort of confining sort of uh, situation. All of these massive sort of class and social issues seem to come out of it. Even though it is a constraint, it obviously great art is often created through constraints through yeah, through limitations yeah. and i think this way of almost like artificially creating those limitations and creating those those restrictions is helping filmmakers in many ways yeah. obviously you have to be a good filmmaker to to, to, to do it well otherwise you yeah. get that 40 minute sag where it's just like this is one out of ideas now it was good for 40 minutes and now i've got to sit through another 40 minutes of this well it brings us back to the template which is lifeboat you know and this is hitchcock yeah. testing himself but also having he's experimenting and having a bit of fun with the experiment as he did with rope a few years later but crucially the studio are expecting him to entertain 
global audiences. They want a product that they can sell and that's appealing to an audience. So yeah, that's an interesting uh, place to to get onto the the sort of parameters of uh, the single location movie. As as we've already discussed, there don't necessarily seem to be any. You can set a single location movie on the moon if you want. You know, as they did with the moon. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so wide open spaces can count hotels and large buildings and, and gigantic transatlantic liners and things can count but I think we can we can look at the the benefits and the pitfalls of making a, a single location film on on the plus side for young filmmakers and if, if you're intending to go out and make one of these things in in your loft today you know they can be cheap to make they don't necessarily have to be you can make a single location film obviously very cheaply you've got the resources around you if you want to do one you can do them with a minimal cast so again that can either be george clooney and scarlett johansson or it can be your mates so it can cost 25 million or it can cost nothing you know if you want it to cost nothing it can and we've got this this angle where for a director and for a writer it's a very interesting area in which to experiment. You can play around with the form. You can do interesting things with it. The pitfalls, I think, as you, you've hit on the first one, which is maintaining and sustaining the interest. You, you might come up with a great concept, but on page 37 of the script, is, is that still running? You know, is it, is it yeah. getting a bit boring? I mean, there's a, lot, there's a lot of great short films out there that are single location short films. Yeah. 15 20 minutes 30 minutes but you just know if you add 10 minutes to any of those running times they start to flag the, the other the other big pitfall with the single location film as i suppose it is with any film really but particularly in this area i think is not only is sustaining the plot but how do you end it because yeah, yeah. Well, Surely you've got to leave the, the single location in order to have an ending, you know, so it almost defeats itself. Um, how do you do, how, how do you finish off your story? If you've trapped all these characters somewhere and they're being attacked by alien or they're going to shoot the president or whatever, how do you finish that? You know, yeah. so there are difficulties to doing it, but. The experts um, have shown the way, you know, they've shown that you can do it. There are a lot of people who've, who've messed it up and done it wrong. And uh, I suppose that's cinema in general, though, you know, that doesn't just apply to this. No, it doesn't. No, absolutely. The ending's the end it's key. It's a unique set of, 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 of sort of rules, I think, though. It just seems to me that, that filmmakers have taken that, that idea and pushed it, pushed it, pushed it, and pushed it right down to as, as, as gimmicky as a single location as you can possibly get. Because um, there's been some really interesting, unique um, one location films out there that are not yeah. hotel rooms, that are not the prairie. You've got some interesting ones. I'm thinking things but like... That do it properly, that do, do actually confine it and, yeah. and have characters literally in... A, a room or in a box or in an enclosed space yeah i think i think the one that really stands out as being the probably the the pinnacle of of, of boiling it down is buried from 2010 yeah. ryan reynolds waking up inside a coffin and he's been buried alive and the whole movie is there in that in that coffin you don't get much more confined and single location than that. and again you know i've just talked about the pitfalls and that movie gets around all of them it really does sustain its interest and you'd think that'd be impossible yeah, no, it, it surprised it surprised the hell out of me when I watched it. Just how how well it how, how well it was done. If if people are looking for a, a, an inspiration, I think go and watch that film and see see how it's properly done. You know how you you can make a film in a box. If you if you'd rather cast one of your mates instead of Ryan Reynolds, you know you'll you'll save ten million bucks as well. So. Uh, so is there, is there any other ones that, that jump out at you for, for those single location, really small, unique? In, in, in terms of really, really confining it, yeah. Um, Danny Boyle's film, uh, 127 Hours, which is interesting in that it's, it's all set outdoors and yet it, it plays against that. It makes the outdoors the, the unattainable treasure that, that our lead character is trying to get to. You know, he's 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 found himself sort of trapped in these uh, in this rock formation, and is is literally sort of wedged into it and can't 
Yeah, literally stuck between a rock and a hard place. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Why Why didn't they call the film that, you know? For me, it feels to me like, no, it is outdoors. It does tie into that trapped in a bunker kind of movies where the outside is the goal. Very much like Buried. It's, it's all about how do I escape from this? Yeah. I'm trapped. How do I get out? And there's nobody to help me. And those movies, those movies are the trickiest because when there's nobody to help you, the chances of like coincidence starting to creep into the plot. Yeah. One one interesting thing that films like that do as well is they 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 get into sort of hallucinatory territory. You know, characters start imagining things occasionally, and and we the viewer don't know necessarily what's real and what isn't. You know, so it's a great chance for filmmakers to sort of pull the rug out under us and keep and this is a way of sustaining the interest you know 40 minutes in your character has some sort of fever dream and we see things on screen that may or may not be there and we take them at face value and think there's this chance of him being saved and then the filmmaker whips that away and says oh no it was all a dream but does it in a very valid sort of way doesn't do it as a get out clause uses the the situation and the character's uh, mental state in order to make that very valid and to fool the audience. It's, it's an interesting trick that you can play in films like that. We were talking, we've been talking about um, Locke recently as well, the set in a car movie with Tom Hardy. Fans of, fans of Tom Hardy, you know, if you want to stare at him for, for an hour and a half, you can do. But uh, although fans of concrete pouring will find that film absolutely fascinating as well, because uh, is, is it the only film ever made about concrete pouring? Because that plays a, a big, big part You've, you've got Tom Hardy basically driving a car in order to get to a hospital and he's had to leave. He's, he's, his job is he's Britain's leading expert in pouring concrete floors onto foundations. He's had to leave the biggest job he's ever had in his life in order to, to, to make this journey. This comes into play in, along the way. You know, he keeps getting phone calls about why aren't you at the concrete pour? You know, so you learn more about concrete pouring in that movie than you ever will anywhere else. I must admit, I'm, I'm no expert in, <laughs> in the world of concrete pouring movies, but I'm willing to bet this is probably the only one. I think so, yeah. Outside of possibly some horror movies where the cover of concrete to hide the crime is potentially a you're on you're on onto the brookside body under the patio <laughs> yeah. thing now. Well, there yeah, you go yeah. then yeah. I, I wonder if Stephen Knight in 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 writing that film did a Stephen King there and thought can I can I not only do a single location film but can I what's the most boring subject I can think of and can I make <laughs> that interesting and sustainable and I, I think he does, you know. And Tom Hardy, Tom Hardy plays a big part in that. I was about to say when you've got like the magnetic screen presence <laughs> exactly. of Tom Hardy, you know, you, you you can make anything interesting. It's almost like Stephen Knight has, has developed the the idea. Can I make a film about Tom Hardy talking about paint drying? You know, and it's all developed out of that. You know, concrete pouring is the next best yeah. thing. Well, that lead that, that that stuck in a car movie leads us on to again Stephen King with Cujo, but also with one of our favourites, Mario Bava. Well, there, there are there are two key um, thrillers um, about criminals not doing the home invasion thing, but doing it in a car instead of breaking into someone's house, they hijack a motor vehicle and they insist on the driver getting them away from the police and into a remote location. And the better known one is a film uh, written by Eric Redd called Cohen and Tate, which came out in the 80s with uh, Roy Scheider and one, one of the Baldwins, I forget which one, Adam Baldwin. Adam. He's not one of the Baldwins, though. He is a Baldwin, right, but he's right. not one of the Baldwins. Long argument with my wife over that, but he's not. I got it completely wrong. I assumed he was a Baldwin, but no. And um, and Eric Red took this this template of the home invasion film and and set it set it in a car and had these violent criminals sort of hijacking some hapless motorist's car and saying, you know, get us out of here, get us away from the police, and again sustaining that across a, 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 a feature length. But fifteen years before that. As you say, Adam, one of our big favourites, Mario Barber, had done a film called Rabid Dogs in Italy. Rabid Dogs never got finished and never got properly released until about 25 years later. So Cohen and Tate came along and rather stole its thunder. But Rabid Dogs eventually made it to DVD about 15, 20 years ago. 
and showed how Barber had actually come up with this concept in the first place. And again, it's the idea that criminals escape from some kind of heist, bank raid or something. And there's a bunch of them, about four of them, and they burst into this car and it's an old man driving the car and he's got this young boy in the front seat with him. And, um, and again, the criminals insist, you know, get us out of here, take us away. We're hijacking your car. We'll tell you where to go. And the entire movie is set in, in the backseat of, of the car. So it's interesting showing that you can, you can do this home invasion film. And in that Stephen King way, you can take some, an idea that you've used before, like the home invasion thriller, and you can condense it even further. And I know um, when we were talking earlier, you were talking about very, very well-known, big budget, massive hit of the 90s, the Keanu Reeves movie, Speed, which yeah. does... It yeah. isn't, isn't necessarily a single location movie, it is expanded from that, but the thing that we were pointing out about that is that it, it does focus largely on a single location, the bus that has to go at certain certain sort of miles per hour. That's interesting and you've got your single location, but it's a location that isn't static. That that movie, I think if that had like, I don't know, five, ten million dollars less on the budget, might have all been set on that bus and it would have made that more of and a could have been. A I mean, it's, a, it's a great film anyway. I think it could have been even even more interesting in a different way had it been more confined. So, uh, but again, it's interesting how this single location idea isn't confined to the single location movie. How you, you do see it in things like The Birds and Psycho from Hitchcock. It's still filtering through Hitchcock's mind that even when he's not making a single location experimentational movie, he's still using that. And, and then other filmmakers do it as well. Speed is a perfect example of where you've got this single location concept but it's in a broader sort of movie these films have their cake and eat it you know they they have their confined cake and eat it you know they bring the cake out of the box if you like while we're on Hitchcock, of course, we, we we need to talk about Rear Window. Of course, yeah, one of the, I guess, the pinnacle of, of his experimentation into single location, the one where it kind of came together as a, as a big budget James Stewart starring. This is not one of his experimental films, but it was. It's, it, it, it's, again, it's got feet in both camps. Hitchcock here recognises, I think, un, perhaps unlike Lifeboat and Rope, he recognises that the studio want me to make a, make a hit. This is just my private joke but I've also got this box of tricks to play with and I can experiment with it while making a popular thriller that will sell to audiences you know we'll 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 do we'll do the 10 million dollar thing or whatever it was you know back then we'll get James Stewart and big stars in the movie but it's going to be a movie unlike any they've ever made you know and it, and it was the interesting thing about it is that how how it comments on cinema and how it comments on that voyeuristic sort of viewing experience it basically James Stewart is looking through a space that is very very similar in proportion to a, a cinema screen. The interesting thing is that we're watching a movie about this guy who's sort of watching a real life movie. He's watching these, these things develop in front of his eyes. And again, it's like 127 hours and it's like buried in a sense in that he's striving to sort of escape from this. With this character, he knows that he can't because of his injury. He, he's, he's not going to be able to get away. He's locked into watching whatever's outside his window. The, the frustrating thing for that character is that he can't see the world beyond what's going what's going on outside the frame, you know. And that's an interesting question for any cinema audience, whatever film you're watching, is whatever's interesting that's passing in front of our eyes, what's the stuff that's going on outside? What's the story we're not seeing, you know? And Rear Window, I think, nails that. Yeah, we've talked about a lot of movies today, and I think that that that's the that's the five star gold standard. I think if you, if you only see one single location film in your life, put that on the poster. Well, I think we've I think we've pretty much talked as much as we can talk on a single location. Although I'd say it's much more 
expansive than I thought it was going to be when I initially suggested. So just to end on, Dar, what, what would you recommend people go and see as, as a single location? A couple of the films that I've mentioned already, the two car movies, uh, Rabbit Dogs and uh, and Cohen and Tate, I would say do do try and seek those out. I've, I've seen neither of those. I do own Rabbit Dogs. I've never got around to watching it yet, so I think... I'd, I'd say watch watch them as a double bill if, if you get the chance. They're, they're very similar, but, uh, okay. but yeah, they've, they've got their own thing going on as well. It's, 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 a, it's a different sort of film for Barber. People that know his horror films or, or his westerns or his Viking epics and things uh, will see this as, again, maybe a bit of a challenge for him. Maybe he was doing a Hitchcock there and saying, let's experiment. Let's see what I can do with this, you know. Um, and then um, the, um, the home invasion film, Fight for Your Life, I would say, it's, it's a very, very, very tough watch. I think I might, I think I might leave that one until I can uh, leave the house and go for a walk after so. seeing I, it's, it. It's a hard, hard watch, but if, if you can stomach it, it's a great film. The other, the other area that I would suggest delving into is the, the gaslighting movies of the 1940s. Not all which are single location movies, but they, they do have that, that same sense of oppressiveness and a sense of a, a single character being trapped. Maybe that's a subject we need to develop at, at greater length in another podcast sometime. Absolutely, we've got, we've got more than enough uh, hours of <laughs> podcasting to go. Um, I, think, I think my two recommendations are a bit more... A bit more bit lighter stalled 2013 uh, zombie movie set entirely in a women's toilet where a janitor's cleaning in there and the zombie apocalypse happens that's um that has a really good stab at a, a 90 minute running time doesn't quite make it but it's it, it's a lot of fun to watch yeah that i've not seen that and that's also been recommended to me this week by by another friend oh really so okay. that's, that's one i might i might go and see Ken it's out, in so. the zeitgeist i think um and the, yeah. the other one is um is a film called tower block that's a great great film but a sniper shooting into a tower block the inhabitants uh, the neighbors on one side of the tower block are all suddenly having bullets fired into their houses and stuff like and uh, are thrown together yeah it's a film that does that thrown together thing but it becomes a social film it becomes a film about hierarchy and about class and about the issue of do you know your next door neighbor you know which most of us don't and suddenly these these people that all live together but don't know it are, are thrown together and they all have to deal not only with the bullets but they have to deal with each other and do they trust each other can they trust each other's opinions and that sort of thing and of course the big thing for us locally is it was one of the big breakthrough films for our old pal Jack O'Connell yeah and he, he steals the movie as well he's very good Absolutely. he steals it from some very accomplished actors as well yeah, that's one worth checking out, and, and wonderfully directed by uh, by James Nunn and Ronnie Thompson. With you mentioning Stalled as well, just before we go, we've we've not mentioned which we intended to another great confined zombie film, which was uh, Pontypool. Yeah, Pontypool's a wonderful movie, wonderful, wonderful movie, zombie movie set in a radio station, like a talk radio, shock jock uh, character starts getting there is reports of, of a zombie outbreak in, in this Canadian, small Canadian town and it escalates from there entirely set in, 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 within the confines of the radio station. Wonderful, wonderful movie. Went down to treat when we screened it here in, in Derby 10 years ago so. It's got this weird sort of take on, on a virus as well which is quite, quite sort of topical. Yeah, I mean it's a, it's, it's a fascinating movie, it really is. It's, it's a movie where the, the, the zombie outbreak, the virus, is spread through words. So hearing words Words and then and, and speaking words that is the virus on and so it's interesting that we're 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 stuck in with these characters in this in this talk radio situation yeah. are, are, they, are they contributing to the problem you know it's a very interesting take on on zombie cinema and doesn't doesn't focus at all on images of, of, of living dead characters it's all it's all about the dialogue it would make a great great radio play you know? i think it has been done as a radio play I think it's been done. I think it was originally a novel, and it has been done as a film, and I think it's been done as a radio play as well. But as 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 a movie, though, it it does work. It's amazing how how visual it is and how well it works. Given the confined themes, you know, it's an interesting um, interesting single location movie. Not only does it limit itself in terms of the location, but it limits itself in terms of how it deals with its situation. With this whole thing about radio, which isn't at all cinematic, and with this this. Uh, 
focus on words spreading the, the disease. You know, it's sort of saying, okay, this is going to be the most talky film ever. It's going to be a film about people talking, you know, and yet how can we make that appealing to a cinema audience? And boy, do they. Cool, well, let's wrap it up there, Daryl. Thank you very much. We'll be back hopefully soon to talk about something else. Um, and we'll see you next time for Cinema. That's great. Yeah, goodbye, everyone. Thank you.